Okay, so uh, moving on to Pesach. I'm um, on Erev Pesach after Mincha. We recite the order of the Pesach offering, which we we say many of the details of the halachas of the process of um, bringing the carbon Pesach. And it's interesting that um, we uh, that we. Um, we always know in the Shalma Farmers of Hasena, we say every day in Davening that by reciting the Pesukim related to, to those sacrifices, that's how we accomplish the union of Karbanis nowadays. And uh, that's why we say every day the Pesukim of different Karbanis, etc. But specifically with the Karban Pesach, we find the custom to not just say the Pesukim of the Karban Pesach, in fact, to not say the Pesukim at all. We don't, in the, in, we don't say the Pesukim of the Karban Pesach, but we recount in great detail the procedure of bringing the carbon Pesach. And there is an emphasis, which um, if you look at the very end, at the bottom of page 408, it says, this is a very brief description of, this is a translation of the Altrebbe's words in the Siddur, which is based on the words of the Shalah, that says that the, uh, this is a very brief description of the order of the carbon Pesach. The God-fearing person should recite it in its proper time, so that its recital should be regarded in the place of its offering. One should be concerned about the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and plead before Hashem, the creator of the universe, that he rebuild it speedily in our days. Amen. And there's a sikha from the Rebbe in the Kutasichus, volume 32, where he talks and uh, again, analyzes these few lines and points to some details about them. Um, but we're also very careful that it should be in its proper time. It says explicitly in its proper time, more so than we are with other carbonus. Um, other carbonus doesn't necessarily say how it has to be in the proper time. It has to be during the daytime. It doesn't have to be, for example, after you say if you have to bring a carbon toida, do you say the psukum of the carbon toida, of the Thanksgiving offering? It doesn't say that you have to say it after you brought the, the you said the psukum for the day, morning offering and day. More, much more generic. Here we're specific that it should be the right time. And in, in many years, it's um, somewhat of a, uh, it's something to really pay attention to because Arab Pesach, everybody's running around last minute, finishing up everything. And uh, usually, let's say even on regular Friday night over here, Mincha is called for 10 minutes after candle lighting. Even if we have a minion on time, by the time Mincha is finished, we're screeching into Shkia, into sunset. And certainly, if we start a few minutes late, then it's. Um, but on Erev Pesach, you have to be finished with Mincha with enough time. It takes at least a few minutes to say this, and it says that you should you should say it, uh, you know, with kavana. So so um, so you have to be finished with Mincha a few minutes before Shkia. So, oh, one second. This is so. But this year, Erev Pesach is on Shabbos. So because our Pesach is on Shabbos, there's basically nothing you can do in preparation for the Seder all day. So whatever you've done, whatever you've done, you've done before Shabbos, anything you haven't done, you have to wait until Shabbos is over. And so this year, it's going to be hopefully very easily accomplishable to finish Mincha before Shkia and to say the Karm, say the Karm Pesach, you know, with enough time to finish it before Shkia. Right? Yeah. This is on Shabbos, Erev Pesach, yes. Um, okay. So let's start. The, um, the custom to, so we're just going to read through it and I'll point out some things as we go along. The custom to say the Seder Karm Pesach is first mentioned by the author of Seder Hayoim, 
who was a, uh, he lived about 450 years ago. And uh, the various Sidurim of the Arizal say it, bring it. There are different, there are some different opinions and even a little bit of polemics perhaps about some of the details of the exact text. And of course, we say it the way the Alti Rebbe printed it in the Siddur and we'll um, go through it. So, um, the Passover offering is bought from yearling male lambs or goats. This is based on the Pasuk in Parshas Boy, Shemones Kapitel Yud Base, where it says, chapter 12, verse 5. Um, this is in the, this is talking about the Pesach in the year of the Exodus. It says that says Samim Zacher ben Shona Yialochem. You must have a perfect unblemished male lamb in its first year. Ben Shona. Now, in 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 our sort of colloquialisms, we would say Ben Shona, somebody who's a year old, an animal that's a year old. But in the Torah, which all the, all the carbonists in the Torah have a certain age that they have to be. And here you see it says Zohar ben Shona, the English translates it as yearling. I don't know what yearling means, but ben Shona does not mean a year old. It means within the first year. So from when the animal is born, there's actually an, an independent mitzvah that you cannot bring an animal as a carbon within the first eight days of its life. So the carbon Pesach was a male. Um, and then it says you can take either sheep or goats. So it was a male sheep or a male goat somewhere between the age of eight days and 12 months. Um, it's interesting to note that in Parshas Re'eh, in that's in Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 2, which is also the reading, it's the reading of the last day of Yom, the last day of Pesach, the second day of Shavuos, Shemini Atzeres, uh, that's the Torah reading for those days. And over there it says, Pesach, you should slaughter the Pesach to Hashem um, from the Tsoin. Tsoin is Tsoin is a collective term for sheep and goats. Well, what's the word for that in English? Is there a collective sheep and goats are, are cousins? Is there a collective term for both of them in English? Sorry? No. It's, a, it's a scientific word. Okay. But in Hebrew, Tsoin. The word tzoyin can mean sheep and goats, um, or any, yeah, any, or lambs, or kids, anything of that of that family is called tzoyin. And then it says tzoyin or bakar. Bakar is is uh, in Yiddish we translate bakar as rinder, uh, cattle means uh, cows. Yeah, bakar is cows. So it seems to be saying that you can bring a carbon pesa from the cows, but actually Chazal tells us that that's not what it means. And Rashi brings it right here in the Pasuk, in, in this Pasuk here, and uh, like we said, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 2, that you have to read it as if there were an additional comma there. You have to bring a carbon Pesach from the Tzoyin, from the sheep and uh, the goats. And then also, if there was a mitzvah for the carbon Pesach to be eaten, for the carbon Pesach to be eaten when you are full, not when you are full and you're stuffed and you can't eat anymore, but not when you're hungry, because you want to eat the Karm Pesach L'shem Mitzvah for the sake of the Mitzvah, not because you're hungry. So before, if you had a um, few people sharing one Karm Pesach, then 
So you just had the Karm Pesach, that was enough. By the time you ate a few pieces, by the time you get to the end and you eat your Kazayas, the Shemitzah, you're already full. But if you only had many people sharing one animal, each person's only getting a small piece, so then you would bring a Karmah Chagiga and a carbon Shlomim, another sacrifice, which you would eat beforehand. And then afterwards, you would have a piece of the Karm Pesach by the way, this is also the case with Afrikaiman. We have the Afrikaiman at the end of the meal, at the end of the Seder. You shouldn't be, have to be careful when you eat the Seder, when you eat Shulchan Eirich, not to stuff yourself full, right? To leave room that you're not forcing yourself to eat. That you don't, not when, that when it comes to Afrikaiman, not that you're hungry, you're not going to be hungry anymore, but that you still have room to eat it, you know, comfortably. So that's what this word of Bakar alludes to, that, in, that, that if you wanted to bring the Karma Chagiga, the Karma Chagiga could have been um, from Bakar. It didn't have to be um, sheep or goat. It could have been also um, a cow. Okay. It's interesting to note what what was more commonly brought? The did people more commonly bring goats or more commonly bring sheep or, or lambs? Lambs or goats? What's the difference between a lamb and a sheep? Any scientists out there? Okay, so it's within the first year. I guess it's called the thing. Okay, and um, so what did people more commonly bring? Now there's a difference. In which parts of the animal are brought onto Mitbech? We actually had this just this past week in Thursday of Pashas Tetzaveh. Um, Rashi mentioned this that there are certain animals which the alia, the tail, is brought on the Mitbech, and the certain animals which it's not. So, sheep and cows had the tails brought on the Mitbech, goats did not. So, um, there's actually a story that with um, Rabbi Yehuda ben Meseira. The Gemara Mshachim says that there was a certain Goy, a Gentile, who bragged to Rabbi Huda ben Maseira that uh, I go every year to the Beis HaMikdash, to Yerushalayim, and I partake in the Karm Pesach, and they don't realize that I'm a Goy, and I'm obviously violating the mitzvah and the Torah that says, by somebody who's not even a Jew, who's uncircumcised, may not partake in the Karm Pesach. So Rabbi Huda ben Maseira did a spiel. And he told him, oh, do you think they give you the best? They don't give you the best part of the animal. Apparently, the tail is a very fatty, choicest part of the animal. We the Ashkenazim nowadays don't eat um, the back half of the animal, so we wouldn't know. <laughs> but apparently, it's a very fatty, choicest part of the animal. So he told, he told, uh, the Rebbe told this guy, go and tell, you think they, tell them to give you the alio, tell them to give you the tail. So indeed he did so, and uh, they were like, hey, why is he asking for that? They smelled something fishy, and he said, what do you mean? Rebbe Ben told me to ask, and so they realized that he was trying to loot something to them, and they found out that he was a guy, and they deaded him. They killed him, and there's some discussion as to why he was liable to the death penalty, but either way, so, uh, so the question is... Um, <laughs> So the question is, what, how, how did Rabbi Huda Ben-Maseira know that he was going to be a sheep, a lamb? Maybe it was going to be a goat. And if it would be a goat, then they would have indeed given him part of the tail. Of the tail. So Toysus over there says that, um, that it was more common practice to bring sheep, lambs, than it was to bring goats. And therefore, he took his chances. He, most likely, that was going to be the case. 
And the Rebbe explains that the reason why people tried to bring the, if possible, the lamb more than a goat was because it was an opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of Kolchel of Hashem, to give the choicest part of the animal to Hashem. Right? If you brought a, that opportunity to, to, to bring the alu, to bring the tail on the Mizbeach as part of the carbon, was an opportunity that you only had if you chose to bring a lamb rather than a goat. And so the norm was for people to do that. Okay. Then it says, and slaughtered anywhere in the temple court after, only after midday on the 14th of Nisan, after slaughtering the daily afternoon offering, and after the afternoon cleaning of the cups of the Menorah. So the Beis HaMikdash was comprised of different sections. The Azara, the courtyard, is the section where the Mizbeach was. And as we know from the Mishnah of Ezel Mekayma, which is on page uh, 22 of your Siddur. So we talk every day, there's the Holy of Holy offerings that have to be slaughtered specifically in the northern section of the courtyard. And then there's Kodshim Kalim, that is Shechitazim Mechol Mokim, you could try slaughter them at any place in the Azara. So the Karm Pesach is the lower degree of sanctity and therefore may be slaughtered anywhere in the temple court. <coughs> Only after midday of the 14th of Nisan, after the slaughtering of the daily afternoon offering, which is an exception to the rule. The rule is, and again, we, we say this every day in davening, at the end of Abai Hav at the very bottom of page 21, where it says, that the daily afternoon offering was with, with, all, with this, all the offerings were completed. So with the exception of once a year, the carbon Pesach, there were never any offerings brought in the temple after the daily, the carbon Tommy, the afternoon daily offering. But the Karm Pesach had to be um, brought after the afternoon offering. Um, and after, obviously, after midday. And he says, after the cleaning of the cups of the menorah, which is in accordance with the opinion of the Rambam, uh, in the, obviously, in the Beis Hamikdash, they lit the menorah every day. Uh, we, yeah, the story of Hanukkah was that they had to light the menorah, so there was no oil. I, and to commemorate that, we light the menorah in Hanukkah. But in the Beis Hamikdash, part of the service was, uh, we, 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 I think we just read this yesterday, yeah, at the very end of Parshish Tetzaveh. So the mitzvah was to, 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 to light the menorah every day. <laughs> However, most of the Rishonim hold that the, same, the way they did it was that every morning they would prepare the menorah, that means clean it out from the wicks and the oils of the previous day and set it up for the new one. And then in the afternoon, they would light the menorah. The Rambam holds that they would actually do the whole process of cleaning up and setting it, setting it up with new wicks and new oil and lighting the menorah twice a day. So when we say here that it was brought after the cleaning of the cups of the menorah in the afternoon, that is in accordance with the opinion of the Rambam, that the menorah was lit twice a day, because according to the other opinions, there was no afternoon cleansing of the menorah. It was cleansed in the morning and lit in the afternoon. Okay. Um, we don't say this here, but it was also, the commentator was also brought after the bringing of the Kteris, the what we call the frankincense. Okay, one should not slaughter the Passover offering while Chametz is in his possession. 
Now the truth is that this is already the afternoon of Erev Pesach. In the afternoon of Erev Pesach, regardless of whether or not you're slaughtering a carbon Pesach, you may no longer own chametz. We have to get rid of all our chametz. And on the biblical level, by midday on Erev Pesach, Midrabon, and we add a couple of hours to that. But here there is an additional transgression. So if somebody even brought the carbon Pesach before getting rid of all his chametz, so in addition to the general transgression of owning chametz on Erev Pesach, which is only in the afternoon, which is only a positive commandment, Tashbisu, right? On Pesach, there's a negative commandment not to own chametz. Says, um, yeah, lo yirah lo chametz. There's a negative commandment. Thou shalt not have chametz. On Erev Pesach, there's there's no negative commandment to not own chametz. There is a positive commandment to Tashbisu. So in Rebbeichem to um, destroy or get rid of any chametz from your possession. But that's just on a regular Erev Pesach in the afternoon. But if a person is shachting the carbon Pesach and he did not get rid of chametz, so then in addition to the above, he has also transgressed the mitzvah of the Sishkat al-Chametz Tamzuchi, not to shech the Karm Pesach while you own chametz. On the Seder, there's um, a bone. Is that, is that the actual Karm Pesach, or is that a symbol of the no, it's it's only a symbol, very strict to not call, refer to it as the carbon Pesach. And in fact, the Chabad custom is that we remove as, as much meat as possible. You remove from the bone because um, it shouldn't be in any way a come across as if we have a carbon Pesach because it's absolutely forbidden to have a carbon Pesach. In um, a few weeks ago, we discussed about whether you could have a carbon Pesach nowadays. But that would only be in the temple. Certainly outside of the temple here in Chicago, it would be forbidden to have a carbon Pesach to, to have to yeah. Um, just as you mentioned it, even though you're allowed to cook on Yom Tif, the bone for the Seder plate with it, which you roast the chicken on has to be done before Yom Tif, not only so that you could start the Seder right away, but also because you're only allowed to cook on Yom Tif food that you're going to eat. And because our custom is that we don't eat any of the meat from the bone. It has to be done before. Um, okay, what happens if he slaughtered it before the daily afternoon offering? It is acceptable provided that someone stir the blood of the carbon Pesach so that it will not conceal, congeal until the blood of the daily afternoon offering is sprinkled and then the blood of the Passover offering is sprinkled once toward the base of the altar. Okay, so if you did it the wrong way around, for whatever reason, you slaughtered the Karm Pesach before the afternoon offering, so B'dievet, post facto, it's valid. And he says, provided somebody else um, is stirring the blood. However, the truth is that that's also not Ma'akav. Yeah? It would be easy to read this as saying that as long as the blood is sprinkled on the altar after the afternoon offering, it's fine. But actually, that's not the case. Even if B'dievet, you, this blood of the Karm Pesach was sprinkled before the blood of the daily afternoon offering, it would be valid. The part that's um, the Yikuva, the part that's uh, um, in, uh, indispensable to, to, to the thing is that somebody has to stir it until it is thrown, because once the blood has congealed and you can no longer administer the blood to the Mizbeach, so then, 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 then it's a lost case. 
there's some question as to whether or not you could, uh, if you if you cook it or add, if there's a way to sort of uncongeal it, whether that would be good or not. Okay. Um, now it's interesting. In it says here, which means that someone else should stir the blood. And I see that in the English they don't say someone else. It just says that someone stir the blood. And the truth is that it's uh, unclear. Why why should it be someone else? Who cares who it is? It could be the same person who shechted it. It could be somebody else. What's the difference who it is? And indeed, um, Rabbi uh, Dine Raskin from London, who has a, a very thick safer on the Alter Rebbe Siddha, where he goes into a lot of details, he brings that in the very early versions of the Alter Rebbe Siddha, indeed it had the word not Acher, but that Reish was changed with a letter that looks very similar to Reish with the Dalad, that someone should uh, stir the blood. So it's interesting that in this Siddha, the English translates it as someone, but in the Hebrew they left the Acher, which means someone else. Um, Okay, then you throw the mizbeach keneged zrika achas keneged hayisoy. So, so some carbonus. Let me say again, you're familiar with this from the morning prayers. Some carbonus have are administered four times to the mizbeach. Some are administered two times. Shtaim sheinabra. Shtaim sheinabra means that you pour the you you have the cup and you throw it onto the mizbeach. On two diagonal corners. Now, when you throw it in the corner, if you throw it in, on, on, on a corner, it's going to go to both directions. So, if you throw it in the northeast corner, it's going to go some blood on the north side, some blood on the east side, and then you go the opposite, and you go in the southwest, and so you've got all four sides. The carbon pesach only had one administering. We say this also every morning in the last Mishnah It has one administering to Mizbeach. Now, the Yusoyed of the Mizbeach means like this, that the Mizbeach um, was sort of designed like a box, it protruded a bit, went down, protruded a bit, went down. At the very bottom of the Mizbeach, there was a base, a, a, a you know, like we have uh, at the bottom of the wall, we have that very thin, uh, what's it called? Uh, baseboard. Yeah, it was a very fat, the armor was uh, a foot and a half wide. It was, I think it was an Amabas five to Hamisha Tvachim, so it was a little bit less than a foot and a half wide that sur- surrounded the whole Mizbech. However, that was in the first temple. In the second temple, the Mizbech was a little bit expanded. But once the Mizbech was expanded to 32 Amas wide, um, that's uh, just a little bit more than 45 feet by 45 feet, just to give you an idea. I mean, the Mizbech was huge, yeah. Um, so the, the the problem was that the mizbeach had to be entirely in the section of I forget now already if it had to be entirely in the section of Binyamin or entirely in the section no entirely in the section of Yehuda Binyamin was Zayiv I believe if I'm saying this correctly it had to be entirely in the section of Yehuda and the section of Yehuda the territory of Yehuda the territory of Binyamin met right over there so they had to take off. A little portion of the Yusoyed Hamizbeach of that bottom, what you call, I guess the Yusoyed means foundation of the Mizbeach, so that it should remain in the entirety in the territory of Yehuda. So it turned out that only two out of four sides of the Mizbeach had a Yusoyed, and the other two had no Yusoyed. Um, so it was like an L shape around one corner of the Mizbeach. And then it protruded, which side was it? Um, here we go. So this, 
right? The north and west, the north and western sides of the Mizbech had a yesoid, and the east and southern side did not, but it would protrude one amma from the west and one amma from the north. And there's two opinions as to when we say it protruded from the west, did it actually sort of bend around and get an amma on the south side on the south side and it protruded from the north and cover an amma of the east side? Or did it just protrude straight out and the east and south side remained entirely with no yusoid at all? Be that as it may, what we're saying over here is that the, the blood of the Karm Pesach is sprinkled only once, but it must be toward the base of the altar. So it could be anywhere along the western or northern walls of the Mizbeach was fine, but you could not do it on the southern or eastern walls of the Mizbeach. How is it done? Oh, interesting, by the way. Another thing that the Rebbe says that the, the blood is zirika, is, is thrown. Uh, there's actually different opinions about this, whether the blood was thrown or poured onto the Mizbeach. Some Kabbalists had to be with zirika, some had to be with shvicha. There's some discussion <coughs> as to what the Karim Pesach was. Um, although um, some suggest over here, that that sometimes the word zrika is specific, thrown versus poured, and sometimes zrika could mean just a generic administered to the mezbech, so it's not necessarily conclusive. No, the the what was the blood that was sprinkled with the finger? You mean? Yeah. Yes, that was the the karmachatos was done with the finger, but most of them were not. Okay. Um, then it says the sheichet slaughters it. And the first kain at the head of the line receives it. Now, the shechita, the slaughtering of the carbon, does not need to be done with, uh, does not need to be done by a kohen. Anybody, even a non kohen, can shecht, can slaughter the animal. But it's mishchita ve'elach, mitzvah kohuna, after the slaughtering, which there's basically four integral parts of the process of the. Of, of the of the karma. I mean, there's more than four. Yeah, it doesn't include taking the parts up to the mezbeach, but there's shechita, helacha, shechita, kabbalah, helacha, zrika. Shechita means to slaughter it. Kabbalah means to take the cup and receive within the cup that first gush of blood that comes after you slaughter an animal. If you've ever seen it or watched it on YouTube, it's quite a powerful flow of blood. Um, and then you have um, helacha, to walk with it to the Mizbech, and Zrika is to administer the blood to the Mizbech. So this. No, according to Halacha, as soon as you as soon as you have severed the Kona and the Veshet, the esophagus and the what's it called? Yeah, the windpipe and the food pipe. Then the animal is considered dead, even though it still has those last throws, but it throws itself around. It's still considered dead. So the second, this, the last three, right? Kabbalah, receiving the blood, taking it to his back and throwing it, those all had to be done by a coin, but the actual slaughtering could have been done by anyone. So that the shaykhut slaughters it, shaykhut is neutral, could be anyone. And the first coin at the head of the line receives it and hands it over to his colleague. Now, what this means is that um, usually the, the Karma Pesach is thousands of people coming. Obviously, not everybody goes into the base of Mikdash, but even, even if each group only had one person in the base of Mikdash, it's still a very full house. 
So the way they did it on Pesach was that instead of you having one coin taking the blood and walking to Mizbech, they had these sort of uh, the lines where they had literally two lines of Kayanim going um, where they would pass, take the picture of the blood and pass it up and down, pass it up and down. And that was, uh, whether it was to save space or the, or the Gemara, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. The, the Gemara says it was in order to give the opportunity to many Kayanim and many people to partake in the mitzvah. Okay, and the Gemara says that part of the integral part of the mitzvah was to, with your feet, with the client's feet, to walk to the Mizbech to bring the blood. So even though they had the whole line passing up and down the blood, the last coin who was the closest to Mizbech took the, took the picture, walked a step or two closer to Mizbech to fulfill that concept of Hilacha, walking, sprinkled the blood, and passed it back. So the first coin at the head of the line receives it and hands it over to his colleague, his colleague to his colleague, and the coin nearest the altar sprinkles it once towards the base of the altar. He returns the empty vessel to his colleague, his colleague to his colleague, receiving the first the full vessel and then returning the empty one. So first, Ein Mavir Nalamitzvah, the Gemara says, when you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, you have to do that first. So first you take the full one from the, the coin to your side, and then you pass back the empty one. First you... Every coin is simultaneously doing two moves, taking a full, new full cup and giving back an empty one, but they would do the first, the taking it first. There were rows of silver vessels and rows of golden vessels. Um, so the Gemara says that was just the same beauty. Um, in order for it to beautify the process, there would be se separate lines, the silver and separate lines for gold, and they didn't mix. There were rows of sudram, and the vessels did not have flat bottoms, lest they set them down and the blood become congealed. It's always fascinating with me, this sort of obsession with the congealed blood. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I would imagine that it would take a long time for a cup of fresh blood to congeal. But, uh, I don't know. Anyway. First of all, the blood is warm when it comes out of the animal. It would probably have to cool down before it could even think of congealing. Um, and if you have a cup full of it, um, I mean, that's going to take a long time. Right, but the, even if a little bit of it congeals, what's the problem? As long as you have some of it left to sprinkle, it should be good. Anyway, afterwards they hung the Passover offerings, flayed it completely, tore it open, cleansed its bowels until the wastes were removed, and the parts of the, on the altar were taken out. So uh, they had special hooks on the wall, the walls of the altar, they had these um, beams, these uh, small little, uh, you know, vertical beams with um, ribuim, whatever hooks, on which they would hang the animal in order to um, take off the skin. I'm assuming that flayed means to take off the skin. And the in the Rishonim, but the Alter Rebbe rules in accordance with the Rambam, that they would flay it completely. They would take off all of the skin before the next section. Some Rishon would say they would take off part of the skin only until the chest, from the head down to the chest, to take out, be able to take out the internal organs, bring them onto the Mizbeach, and then afterwards finish the flame. But the Alter Rebbe says they were flayed completely. This is in accordance with the Rambam. Tore it open, cleansed its bowels um, until the wastes were removed and the parts offered on the altar were taken out, namely the fat that is on the 
entrails, the lobe of the liver, the two kidneys with the fat on them, and the tail up to the backbone. Again, sort of just assuming that you're bringing, it doesn't even mention that if it was a goat, you wouldn't bring the tail. Um, so uh, for some reason, he's just assuming this, which would fit with what we said before, that um, based on the Toysos, that it was the norm to bring a kaves, so um, the, the tail was thick. I don't know what the lobe of the liver or the entrails are. I'm not all that familiar with the anatomy of, of animals so, or human. So, um, yeah, okay. They were placed in a ritual vessel, salted, and burned by the Kayan upon the altar. Why were they salted? Everything that went to the Mizbeach had to be salted. They used to have salt on the ramp going up to the altar. Everything had to be salted. Each one individually, right? So this was a special mitzvah, even though it was a very busy day, and there were hundreds of kabbalists being brought. It was a special mitzvah that each carbon be separately, distinctively, distinctively brought on the altar. So you can't do like, okay, guys, let's get all the intestines from these 10 animals and bring them up. No, one at a time. Okay. The Gemara tells us a story about the B'nai B'seira, the famous story about B'nai B'seira. We mentioned this a few weeks ago when we spoke about Rashir Minatam's Tefillin, where one time Pesach, as it does this year, fell, f- falls on Erev Shabbos, and they didn't know if they are allowed to bring the Karm Pesach on, Erev, on Shabbos. Sorry, Pesach, what did I say? Erev Pesach fell on Shabbos. So until uh, Hillel Hazachin came and he demonstrated that you can bring the Karm Pesach on Shabbos, and of course the obvious question is like, what do you mean? How could nobody? How how could it be that nobody remembered that you bring the Pesach on Shabbos? Anyway, but be that as it may, um, we say what we're about to say here is that only the integral parts of the carbon were allowed to be done on Shabbos. Um, so he says like this: the slaughtering, the sprinkling of its blood, the cleansing of its bowels, the burning of its fat override the Shabbos. Now the other things pertaining to it do not override the Shabbos. So that's like this year, right? Um, so, for example, roasting it for the to eat at the seder, you wait till after Shabbos. Wait till after Shabbos, and then before you start the seder, um, that's when you bring the carbon paste. That's when you roast it. Um, by the way, there's some chassidim. There's a chumrah say that the matzah that you use by the seder should be matzah that was baked on erev Pesach. Here in Chicago, it's a difficult thing to accomplish, but. Uh, Certainly by the Rabbeim, that was something that the Rebbe and the Rabbeim did. Not our Rebbe, but the earlier Rabbeim, actually, they themselves participated in the process of baking the matzahs on Erev Pesach. So what do you do in this year when Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos? So what most people do is that they, they make the matzahs on Friday, so you do the best you can. But there are some chassidim, I think square chassidim, who go and bake matzahs on Pesach. That means... Uh, on, on Mayriv, after after Mayriv, this year will be Matzah Shabbos, yeah, instead of going home for the Seder, they first go to the Matzah Bakery and bake fresh matzahs, and, uh, which is somewhat challenging to make matzahs on Yom Tif. There's many rules that have to be followed, but that's what they do, and then they use those things, okay? Likewise, if the 14th on this and falls on Shabbos, the Passover offering are not carried home, right? So what do you do? I was going to say soon that um, there are three groups. The carbon Pesach is divided into three groups. Now, the reason why it's divided into three groups is as follows. The, the Pasuk says, 
also in, in the same Parshish Boyin, Exodus chapter 12, that it will be slaughtered by the community and the congregation of Israel. So each of these three words, community, kahala, das Yisrael, we translate them accurately in English, but those three words, um, so each of them require mean a group. Now the question is, does it mean a group comprised of three groups? So we know a group is 10, a minion is 10. So that means the group would have to be 30 people, or does it mean three separate groups? So because of that uncertainty, we bring, we do both. So that means we have three groups and each group um, contains at least 30 people. I mean, obviously, there was usually much more than that, although the Rebbe does say that um, the third group was that Slanim, was the lazy people who didn't get their act together. They, the, the stragglers, they were in the last group. So when Mashiach comes, if we determine, if he determines for us this doubt as to what the Pasuk actually means, so then uh, maybe we'll abolish if, if, if it means yeah, we, possibly there won't be any third group anymore. There'll just be two groups. Anyway, so we're going to say that there's three groups. So if it falls on Shabbos, you can't go home. You have to stay in the Beis HaMikdosh with your carbon. Why can't you go home? It's not a problem to carry in your Shalayim. There are different opinions. Some say it is a problem to carry in your Shalayim. Some say you don't go home because then there's a concern that you might start roasting it to do other preparations for it. Okay, so what, what does everybody do with that carbon? So he says, um, the first group remains with the carbon Passover offerings on the Temple Mount. So they're going out of the Azara. They're in the Azara, in the courtyard. They, they go out from the Azara through the Erzus Nashim onto the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was a very big thing, 750 feet by 750 feet, so there's plenty of room over there for people to be. The second group sits in the Chayl, which is an area just outside the Temple Court, and the third stands in its place. So they li remain literally standing, because you're not allowed to sit in the Azara. They literally remain standing there until Shabbos went out, and they, um, then they would take the government pays at home. There's also some discussion as to why they had to stay there. Why couldn't they go out into the Ezra's Nashim, into the outer courtyard, the women's courtyard of the Mesa Mikdash? But be that as it may, that's what they did. When it becomes dark, they go to their places and roast the Passover offerings. Okay, this is all about when it falls on Shabbos. If it falls on the weekday, as soon as they finish, they go home and think. Passover offering was slaughtered in three groups. So even though we already assumed that you knew that a few lines ago, now we're introducing the concept. Each group consisting of no less than 30 men, like I described before. The first group entered, the temple court was filled, and they closed its doors. Now there's actually a machlokas in the Gemara, if they closed the doors, or there was a miraculous thing that the door was closed, because how they managed to close the doors um, in such a full thing. But anyway, the Altarebbe says that they closed the doors. Why did the doors have to be closed? Why couldn't they stay open? So this Rashi says the reason is because we don't want everybody to come into the first and second group and not have enough people left for the third group. Benachananel says that it was a safety measure. They didn't want people to be trampled to death as it indeed happened once. So um, they closed the doors. While they were slaughtering it and offering its part on the altar, they recited the hollow. 
who's the day who recited the halal. So over here, they add in in brackets the Levim. This is something which there's a very big chiddush of the Rebbe because the normative understanding of the sugya of the Gemara is that it's a machloikus. Rashi says that every group reads the halal. And Toysus says, no, not every group reads the halal. The Levim recite the halal. Um, so, so, but the Rebbe in his Haggadah and in an ensuing correspondence with Shlomi Yosef Zevin, who we've mentioned many times, was a great Talmud Chacham. We spoke about him in the class about bringing Karm Pesach nowadays and his correspondence with the Rebbe about that, about Pesach Sheni. Anyway, so he he was, he, he says, what do you, he, so the Rebbe in the, in the Haggadah over here, right, the Levim sang halal. So Shlomi Yosef Zevin, what, what do you mean the Levim sang halal? It's Machlokas. Rashi says that the the the, 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 the group themselves said the halal, the people themselves said the halal, and Taisa says, no, it was a Levim. But the Rebbe insisted that it doesn't mean that, that when Rashi says that the the groups, every group sang halal, he doesn't mean to say that it was the members of the group themselves, he means to say that every group did it, not just the first group, as you could have misunderstood. And similarly, when Taisus um, says what was assumed to have been disagreeing with Rashi. Toysus is quoting Rashi saying, don't, it wasn't the groups, it was the Levim. So the Rebbe said, Toysus is not disagreeing with Rashi, he's explaining Rashi, he's saying, don't think that Rashi means that the Israelim, that the groups themselves did it, it was the Levim. And indeed, um, in the Toysus Arash, which I don't know if it was published yet at the time that the Rebbe's correspondence with Rebbe the Toysus Arash is a, also another manuscript of Toysus, so it's the same time as Toysus, and over there, it's clear that Toysus does not mean to argue with Rashi. Okay, so, Reb Ruven, Reb you're not a lady. We're boring, but Ruven, Reb you got to sharpen your halal singing skills. Now, what do you do if they finished halal before all the sacrifice, all of them were sacrificed, they repeated it, and if they repeated it, if they finished it the second time, and they were recited a third time. The Gemara says they never finished it the third time. And indeed, those who bake carbon, the matzah on Erev Pesach, so again, it's there to resemble the carbon Pesach. So they say halal while they're baking the matzah on Erev Pesach, they recite halal. Each time, each time halal was recited, the Kainim sounded three blasts of the trumpet, Tkia, Tru, and Tkia. Now, the English here says of the trumpet, which is true, it was a trumpet, it wasn't a shofar, but it's interesting that they put that into the English even without brackets, because it doesn't say that in the Hebrew, it just says they, they blew three blasts. And this is based on the Tosuk in Parshish Baaloischa, um, Numbers chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Which also has the song of Yem Simchas, Chem of Mayande, Echemir. What did I say? Chapter 10. Yeah, Aaron's descendants are preached to blow his trumpets, an eternal war for all time. And then that's verse 8 and verse 10. And the days of your rejoicing, your festivals, your newborn, you should blow the trumpets when bringing your communal burnt offerings, your peace sacrifices, right? So part of the procedure of bringing your bonus was to have the kind of blast 
trumpet, and we're told here that they blew a tchia and a trua and a tchia, but not on a shofar and a trumpet. Um, it's actually a bit of a different art because a trumpet you blow from the front of your mouth. So to do a trua, it's the, the tongue, it's a bit of a different art. If you've ever blown those shofars that are, you know, the long curly shofars, where also it's certainly much easier to blow from the center of your mouth than from the side, um, even though the halacha is that ideally you should blow from the side. Um, but anyway, okay. When the offering was entered, they opened the doors of the temple court. The first group went out, and the second entered, and they closed the doors of the, of the temple court. When they finished, they opened the doors, and the second group went out, and the third entered. The procedure of each group was the same. Now, he doesn't mention that uh, the, the, the Ramam and the Mishnah only talk about closing of the doors after the first group. But here in the Seder Kampesach, he adds in this closing of the doors after the second group, but he doesn't talk about closing the doors after the third group. And it could be, basically said before, that there's two reasons to close the doors, either so that people shouldn't get too squished, or because we want enough people to be left for the later group. So according to both of those reasons, it may not have been necessary to close the doors after the third group because there was no later group to leave people to. And as it was, there weren't so many people in the third group, so there was no concern of people getting injured. After they had all left, they washed the temple court, even of Shabbos, of the filth of the blood. How was the washing done? A water duct passed through the temple court and had an exit from the court. When they wished to wash the floor, they shut the exit and the stream overflowed its sides until the water rose and flooded the floor all around it, and all the blood and the dirt of the court were, ga- the, yeah, were gathered into it. And then they then opened the plug, they opened the exit, and everything flowed out, and the floor was completely clean. This is the honor of the temple. So even though usually it would be forbidden to do such a thing on Shabbos, but there's a rule in Shavos Mikdash that rabbinic decrees, things that which the rabbis decreed not to be done on Shabbos, don't apply in the temple. So even though you're not allowed to wash your floors on Shabbos, because that could lead to sweeping the floor, and sweeping the floor is forbidden because... Um, you could be mashed for gummis, you could flatten out holes. Now, nowadays, when we live in places where um, all, virtually all homes are rutsif, that means that there's the tiles or wool, you know, it's, there's no holes, it's not earth, so then it's not a problem. But in the times of the Mishnah, it was forbidden to sweep on Shabbos, and so that also related to that forbidden to wash the floor on Shabbos. What happened to all the kainim? How did they, if they overflowed the water with... Um, with, with the Azar with water, where did everybody get soaking wet? And in addition, there's another question that it says that the Kainim's clothes had to be clean. So that was certainly very challenging. How do you keep your clothes clean in such a thing? And perhaps they had had to constantly be changing their clothes. I don't know. But it does bring, I think, in the Gemara that there were it's the boys, that there were stages uh, or platforms, step-ups to go in the Azar where they could stand. Obviously, they had to be wasn't just like a box. It had to be part of the floor because you have to be standing on the floor of the temple when you're doing the service. Um, but uh, whatever, that must have been part of the challenge. Okay. If the Passover offering was found to be unfit, so the, you shafted everything, and then uh, unfit means it's trefa. You know, you find a hole in the lung. It wasn't glut, yeah? So then it wasn't kosher. So then you did not fulfill the obligation until he brings another one. And like the Raman says, you have to keep him from bringing another one and another one until it's found to be kosher, or until if you, they're all coming not kosher, then you know eventually once the once the time is over, once once it's, once it's sunset, then your time is over and you are 
then you're honest, circumstances be under control, and you would try again a month later on Pesach Sheni. Um, and in the Sikha that I mentioned before, from Chelek Lamed Beis, the Lukhati Sikhas, the Rebbe discusses at great length the kind of oddity in this being the last line over here, like we've already finished the whole thing, you've gone home, you've washed the Azara, oh, and by the way, and of course, as you can imagine, there's many details of the laws of the Kampesach which we don't mention, this is just a basic overview, and why the mention of just this one random law that if the Pesach was unfit, you have to bring another one. And the, 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 very briefly, the gist of the Rebbe's explanation is more on the homiletical side that basically there's kind of this sort of dichotomy here. On the one hand, like we said, the you read it in its proper time and its recital is should be regarded in the place of the actual offering. So this is not just Stam reading Sukkim like we do every day, but this is like actually like we're reading Karm Pesach. But at the end of the day, it's not. It's not actually bringing the Karm Pesach. It's not actually um, in the temple. And this sort of sad note that we finish off with reminds us that this is not the actual real deal. And the Rebbe explains about the idea of trefa, this type of non-kosherness, what it allude that it alludes to uh, uh, tre- in the pasuk, which in the pasuk in the Torah, which says that trefa is not kosher. It talks about trefa vasada because any hole in the lungs or in the internal organs is no good. But the way the Torah describes that is if the animal was attacked out there in the field by another animal, that would be a common way of, of them having internal wounds. Nowadays, they just get it because they swallow needles. But back in the day where we had healthy, organic, grass-fed cows, um, by the way, why, did, why does so much of the kosher shkita happen in South America of, 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 of um, beef? Because, because uh, it's healthier conditions. There's much, there's much, uh, there's much, there's much, in America, in many places in Europe, in America, where they shaft cows, only one out of every 10 cows is going to be kosher, or certainly only glad kosher, because there's always problems with the lungs, right? But that, that wasn't the case in a, that's in the commercial world. That's the reality we deal with. But uh, anyway, so the point is that being trefa alludes to being out there in the field, which, an, which is an allusion to our general circumstance of being in Golos, where we're out there in the field, and we're reminded that this is not the real deal. And... We want to come back home, came to Yelono, as we say in the Seder, and as we'll say this year, usually in the blessing at the end of the Haggadah, before we drink the second cup, we say that we should drink, we'll eat in the temple from the Zvachim, the general generic sacrifices, and from the Psachim, from the Pesach sacrifices. But this year, on the first Seder, which is not the Shabbos, there was no other sacrifices because the other sacrifices being optional did not override Shabbos. Only the Pesach, which was mandatory, overrided Shabbos. And that's why if you pay attention to your Haggadah, you'll see that it says in parentheses, I'm not to Shabbos, you switch the, the order box. and you say, sorry? In the shaded box. In the shaded box, exactly. You say, <laughs> Make sure that on the second nights you avoid the shade. <laughs>